Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 28th of July for the listening week that begins the 29th, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey, opening with a couple of articles from TheRoot.com. New details released in tragic death of Obama's former personal chef, written by Angela Johnson, published on the 28th. Tafari Campbell's body was recovered from a pond near Martha's pardon me, Martha's Vineyard, on Monday. This was updated on the 28th in the morning, 9.30. The Obama family is mourning the loss of a former White House chef and close family friend who died in a tragic accident near their Martha's Vineyard summer retreat. And now new details have emerged about 45-year-old Tafari Campbell's final moments. An unidentified eyewitness who was out paddleboarding with Campbell on Sunday, July 23rd, told police they saw him lose his balance and fall into the water. The witness says Campbell, who was not wearing a life jacket and was not attached to the paddleboard, fought to stay above the water before eventually succumbing. The witness told police they tried to swim to Campbell to save him, but did not reach him in time. The person then swam to shore where they alerted someone to call 911. According to Mass Live, the investigation and autopsy wrapped up on Tuesday and found no evidence of foul play. A toxicology report is still in progress. On Sunday evening, July 23rd, police received reports that Tafari Campbell was missing after going paddleboarding on a pond near the Obamas' home. According to police, another paddleboarder who was at the pond at the time saw Campbell go underwater. They say he, quote, appeared to briefly struggle to stay on the surface and then submerged and did not resurface. Massachusetts State Police confirmed that the 45-year-old's body was recovered from a pond the following morning. Martha's Vineyard, an island just south of Cape Cod, is a popular vacation destination for the rich and famous, including the Obamas, Oprah Winfrey, and Spike Lee. The Obamas were not at their home at the time. Parts of the island are also a popular end-of-summer vacation retreat for black entrepreneurs, creatives, and professionals, especially from the Northeast. It's not clear whether Campbell was vacationing or working on the island at the time. The Obamas paid tribute to Campbell, who leaves behind a wife and two children, in this statement. Tafari was a beloved part of our family. When we first met him, he was a talented sous chef at the White House, creative and passionate about food and its ability to bring people together. In the years that followed, we got to know him as a warm, fun, extraordinarily kind person who made all of our lives a little brighter. That's why when we were getting ready to leave the White House, we asked Tafari to stay with us, and he generously agreed. He's been part of our lives ever since, and our hearts are broken that he's gone. Today we join everyone who knew and loved Tafari, especially his wife, Sharice, and their twin boys, Xavier and Savin, in grieving the loss of a truly wonderful man. 
Next, written by Keith Reed and Jessica Washington. It was posted on the 28th. No, forgive me, it was posted on the 25th. Biden announces historic first for black women in the White House. Shawanza Goff will be the first African-American woman to serve as director of the Office of Legislative Affairs. Black women continue to shake things up in the Biden White House. For the first time in history, a president is putting a black woman in charge of pushing his legislative agenda through Congress. On Monday, President Joe Biden announced the appointment of Shawanza Goff as director of the Office of Legislative Affairs. Goff is a familiar face in the administration and on Capitol Hill. Before her brief exit from the White House to join a D.C. lobbying firm, she served as Deputy Director of Legislative Affairs. As my Deputy Director of Legislative Affairs, Shawansa helped pass monumental pieces of legislation through Congress, from the American Rescue Plan and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill to the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Said, Obama, pardon me, said Biden in a statement about her appointment. Shawansa's close partnership with my decades-long friends in the House and Senate and her expertise, instincts, and deep respect for the United States Congress will continue to serve our administration and the American people well, he ended. Goff, 38, is regarded as a Capitol Hill vet with a reputation for building relationship and helping Democratic lawmakers push their agendas. Her appointment puts her among several black women, including Vice President Kamala Harris, to Associate Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown, Brown Jackson, to Council of Economic Advisors Chair Cecilia Rouse, to be nominated or hired for their positions for the first time, her appointment also comes at the start of a likely bitter campaign cycle, a period when previous administrations have shifted their focus away from passing major pieces of ex pardon me of legislation and toward running on their records. In an interview with the Root longtime Biden ally, Representative Jim Clyburn, Democrat South Carolina, lauded Goff's work in Washington, calling her very astute politically and pointed to the passage of signature pieces of Biden's agenda, including a $1 trillion infrastructure spending bill, the American Rescue Plan, and the Inflation Reduction Act. But he stopped short of saying he didn't expect any major legislative pushes from the White House. What we've demonstrated in the past several months is that the president's agenda, Bidenomics, whatever you want to call it, is working. Black unemployment is lower than it's been in decades, Unemployment overall is lower, he said. We've just got to implement what is already in place. Moving next to the griot.com. First one was posted on the 28th. A 60th anniversary edition of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech to debut in August. A commemorative edition of I Have a Dream will be published in tandem with the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, with a foreword from the King children. I don't see an author's name here. It has been nearly six decades since the March on Washington, October 28, 1963, and the ideals expressed in Dr. Martin Luther King's now-hallowed I Have a Dream speech remain aspirational throughout the world. 
To commemorate the 60th anniversary of the historic March and Seminole speech, this week, Harper One Group announced it will release a special edition of Dr. King's I Have a Dream this August. As we commemorate the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington and the inspiring dream my father shared on that day, we are called not only to commemorate his vision, but also to correct the festering injustices of poverty, racism, and violence with action, writes Martin Luther King III in a press release to the Griot. King III, alongside his surviving siblings, Dexter Scott King and Dr. Bernice King, will provide the forewords and an afterword for this special edition. The release will be the latest in HarperCollins Publishers' long-standing affiliation with Dr. King. The publisher released King's first book, Stride Toward Freedom, The Montgomery Story, in 1958, followed by six additional titles, including Strength to Love, in 1963. In 2021, HarperCollins became the official publisher of Dr. King's archives, forming a comprehensive publishing program that this fall will re-release his writings, titled Beyond Vietnam, I've Been to the Mountaintop, and Our God is Marching On, as well as an annual special edition of I Have a Dream. Arguably King's best-known speech, the themes of I Have a Dream still strongly resonate today. I believe the speech is so beloved because of its critical analysis of the conditions of the Negro and race relations in the United States in the 1960s, while yet also ending on a very optimistic tone that inspired belief in a future full of promise, said Dexter Scott King in a statement. Coinciding with a renewed assault on voting and civil rights, critical race theory, and the teaching of black history in the United States, the re-release of the speech is especially timely. Despite progress, racial inequality and discrimination persist today, Judith Kerr, president and publisher of Harper One Group, said in a statement, went on, the opportunity to sit and read Dr. King's speech serves as a reminder that the pursuit of equality is an ongoing struggle that requires continued efforts from us all. In revisiting his off-quoted words, Dr. Bernice King also urges readers to reconsider their interpretation of her father's work and legacy. Did we compromise and diminish the dream to accommodate a more convenient king? If we are to authentically and with integrity remember and contemplate my father, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a speech, pardon me, I have a dream speech, we must thoughtfully answer this question, she writes. On the 60th anniversary of the speech, I beckon us to examine how a speech about revolutionary dream, a revolutionary dream, that was necessitated by the scourges of racism and poverty, is frequently relegated to an emphasis on its triumphant ending without an exploration of its demand for justice. Next article about another anniversary. This was posted on July 27th, written by Panama Jackson. Hopefully, hip-hop's 50th birthday celebration creates a moment for underappreciated artists. This is an opinion piece by line between all of the documentaries, tribute concerts, and exhibits. There's an opportunity for artists whose stories have long been forgotten to receive recognition. 
Back in 2018, Netflix dropped a film about hip-hop pioneer Roxanne Chante, Lolita Chante Gooden, former member of the Juice Crew, a legendary crew of MCs including, but not limited to, MC Sean, Big Daddy Kane, Biz Markey, Cool G Rap, and producer Marley Marl. And one of the participants in the famous Roxanne Wars of the mid-1980s. The Roxanne Wars were a back-and-forth record beef between Roxanne Chante and rapper The Real Roxanne. The film, titled Roxanne, Roxanne, was a dramatized retelling of Chante's life as an up-and-coming female rapper and some of the beefs that entailed and the uphill battles she had to fight. I bring this up because I remember back then wondering at first how or why they decided to create this film. By 2018, Chante wasn't exactly in the public eye, and especially not for this newer generation of rappers. But while I wondered, I was also happy about two things. One, a film about her life was created, and two, so many people watched it because that would ensure that a whole crop of folks would learn about her story that might not even know she existed. The film being distributed by Netflix meant a ton of folks would watch, and they did, and that was amazing for the culture because, let's be real, hip-hop isn't necessarily a genre that reveres its pioneers. While I'm sure some rappers today grew up on foundational hip-hop from the 80s and 90s, we've all been treated to enough interviews and social media back-and-forths to know that Hip-hop is a space where a ton of the originators feel slighted and underappreciated. When I read books, pardon me, when I read books like Clover Hope's The Motherlode, 100 Plus Women Who Made Hip-Hop, or read books about the early years of hip-hop, or listen to podcasts like Open Mike Eagle's What Had Happened Was, or Questlove's Questlove Supreme, and the amount of knowledge I get is insane, and so many artists who contributed so heavily get an opportunity to tell their stories and be heard. I can't imagine how frustrating it must be to be a genuine and active participant in a movement that literally changed the world, and to feel like less than a footnote as the culture changes with light speed. To be fair, it's not all of the new artists' fault, either. Older, boom-bap-style rappers and producers haven't been the most welcoming of the changing guard. Recently, super producer and hip-hop legend Dr. Dre sat down with Kevin Hart on his Heart to Heart show and pointed out that while he won't hate on the new music that's coming out, he pretty much also doesn't like any of it. But he suggested that there's no place for the negativity when talking about the current state of hip-hop, and that's a thing... Again, it isn't hard to find interviews by older rappers trashing younger rappers' music, and vice versa. But it feels like the 50th anniversary of hip-hop is a way to bridge that gap, at least somewhat. It seems like every week there is some concert or show in some city celebrating hip-hop. I would imagine New York City, where a ton of those early pioneers hail from, would be no different I would hope that the folks who made the music that turned me into a hip-hop head would get some chances to be seen and feel heard. That's my hope, anyway. I also see a universe where so many artists who paved even the smallest of ways could, unfortunately, continue to live in the shadows of a culture they contributed to early, 
perhaps ahead of their time, or maybe only of their time. It's why, despite some of the production value issues, I enjoy the movies being made by all the networks about music acts like salt and Peppa and TLC. Because the truth is, for every Tupac, Biggie, Jay-Z, Nas, Nicki Minaj, Ice Cube, Lil' Kim, Tyler, The Creator, Kendrick, G. Herbo, Meg Thee Stallion, Rakim, and on and on, are tons of rappers whose career in rap ended decades ago, but whose impact on the culture was cemented because they were there, pardon me, in real time, and contributed from New York City to Los Angeles and every city north, south, and in between. Hopefully we remember as many of those folks who put on for their cities and our cities as we celebrate the culture as a whole. And a little bit about the author he's written about himself. Panama Jackson is a columnist at the Grio. He writes very black things and drinks very brown liquors and is pretty fly for a light guy. His biggest accomplishment to date coincides with his blackest accomplishment to date in that he received a phone call from Oprah Winfrey after she read one of his pieces, Biggest, and he didn't answer the phone because the caller ID said, Unknown Blackest. Next commentary on some current events. This comes from The Griot, written by Michael Harriet, posted July 27th. I may edit this for length. Florida's black history standards are even worse than reported. It's an opinion piece. While critics have singled out the part of Florida's social studies standards referencing the, quote, benefits of slavery, the Griot found numerous examples of miseducation embedded throughout the curriculum. Florida's black history curriculum is even worse than reported. If you're black, you've been here before. Aside from sitting through countless classes in which a social studies teacher valorizes the men and women who reduced your ancestors to chattel, every black person has been pulled aside by a well-meaning white person who wants to flaunt their rudimentary knowledge of black history. It usually happens on MLK Day or at the office Juneteenth celebration, when Caroline proudly asks, Did you know a black history fact that you learned before you could even read? But to be fair, this isn't Caroline's fault. White people don't know anything about black history. Research shows white students generally perform worse than black students when it comes to African American history. Poll after poll shows that black Americans are more likely than whites to know that slavery caused the Civil War. According to a 2016 study, only 8 to 9% of class time in K-12 social, social studies classes is devoted to black history. However, a study of Black History Month activate, pardon me again, Black History Month activities at K-12 schools found that majority black schools are more likely to teach black history, while majority white schools are more likely to prioritize quote, individual achievements over historical barriers. Pew Research notes that black adults are twice as likely to say they learned black history from family members than in a K-12 classroom. Black college grads are more likely to study ethnic, cultural, or gender groups in college compared to white graduates. But here's the interesting part. White people think they know history. White people are more likely than black people to say they know about the civil rights movement, the Civil War, and emancipation and reconstruction. 
Perhaps this is why people were shocked when the Florida State Board of Education, which only has one member who actually has experience as an educator, introduced its new social studies curriculum that requires teachers to tell students, quote, how slaves develop skills which, in some instances, could be applied for their personal benefit. Vice President Kamala Harris decried the state-sanctioned whitewashing and said, Adults know what slavery really involved. Speaking to a Jacksonville, Florida crowd, it involved rape, it involved torture, it involved taking a baby from their mother, and some of the worst examples of depriving people of humanity in our world. Florida's anti-woke governor, Ron DeSantis, tried to distance himself from the standards, while others have defended the new curriculum standards composed by the state's African-American History Task Force. But when the GRIO examined the FDOE's full African-American history strand, we discovered that the trade school for enslaved people narrative wasn't even the most egregious part of Florida's new academic curriculum standards. The state guidelines include multiple examples of historical fiction, including some that perpetuate misconceptions, conservative ideology, and long-held white falsehoods about black history. Many of the requirements simply reflect ahistorical conservative talking points that often are regurgitated whenever someone brings up inequality. The individual discrepancies are too numerous to list. To shine a light on the most glaring, probably not intentional errors, the GRIO decided to list the top ten parts of Florida's miseducation of the white man. Looks like going from the bottom. Number ten. The enslaved benefited from slavery. Florida's white history mandate. The curriculum guide states that children will learn, quote, how slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Why it's wrong. Let's get this one out of the way. Although it is not even close to the worst part of the Sunshine State's white history program, it reinforces a recurring argument used by slavery apologists that black people benefited from being enslaved. An African was one of the first to grow wheat in the Americas. Rice, cotton, and indigo did not grow in places occupied by white people. It was the expertise of the enslaved that transformed African horticultural knowledge into America's first cash crops. African artifact, pardon me, again, African architects and bricklayers taught white people how to build homes that could withstand the American climate. Colonizers traveled to West Africa to steal blacksmiths because white people needed to benefit from skills Africans developed before slavery. Onesimus, an enslaved Muslim, introduced inoculation to America. Forgive me if I've mispronounced his name. And yes, I have. um, Onesimus, an enslaved Muslim, introduced inoculation to America. There is not a single skill developed during the period of legal, race-based chattel slavery that a free person could not have learned. The American experiment nearly failed, ultimately devolving into cannibalism and welfare, precisely because the first Virginia colonizers were inept at, well, everything needed to survive. They could not farm, they could not build things, they had no skills. This narrative also undergirds another argument. People who have only been exposed to whitewashed history, some of whom are black, 
actually believe black people benefited from being introduced to white Jesus. Because of their lack of historical knowledge, they have no clue that the Jamestown settlers reached America two years before King James created a version of the Bible for white people. At least 512,924 Africans were enslaved in America before the King James Version was printed in Britain's North American colonies. To be fair, the racist belief that enslaved people were unskilled is an ancient European tradition. Do not obtain your slaves from Britain, warned Roman Consul Cicero, because they are so stupid and so utterly incapable of being taught that they are not fit to form part of the household of Athens. Number nine, black patriots fought in the American Revolution. Florida's white history mandate says students are required to examine the service and sacrifice of African patriots during the revolutionary era, in parentheses, examples, Crispus Attucks, Peter Salem, James Armistead Lafayette, 1st Rhode Island Regiment. Why it's wrong. On July 10, 1775, seven days after some white man named George Washington became commander-in-chief of the disparate colonial militias, the New Continental Army's recruiters were instructed, quote, not to enlist any Negro or vagabond or person suspected of being an enemy of the liberty of America. The actual U.S. Army website notes, at the start of the war, Washington had been a vocal opponent of recruiting recruiting, pardon me, black men, both free and especially slaves. It wasn't until the all-white patriots were getting their butts kicked that Washington's all-white army welcomed black soldiers. Even still, there isn't a shred of historical evidence that Crispus Attucks believed in the patriot cause. In fact, he was initially cast as a villain in America's origins story. Peter Salem enlisted as an alternative to life as human chattel, when they mention the Rhode Island Regiment, Florida should specify which one. Are they referring to the black Rhode Islanders in the state's militia that caused racist Rhode Islanders to repeal the law recruiting slaves and declare, quote, no Negro, pardon me, Negro, mulatto, and Indian slave be permitted to enlist? Perhaps they want students to learn about the Continental Army's segregated 1st Rhode Island Regiment that re-enslaved black soldiers and refused to compensate them after the war. In the case of Lafayette, the Rhode Island Regiment, and many others, the new nation reneged on its promise to free him in exchange for his service. Florida's Caucasian race theory mischaracterizes black freedom fighters' intentions by ascribing free white men's values to a few cherry-picked black individuals. The correct way to teach this would be to simply teach the facts. Approximately 5,000 black men fought for America in the Revolutionary War. More than 20,000 fought against America. Even the black loyalists in the American Revolution were not fighting to preserve the British Empire. They were fighting for their freedom. Number eight, the white people who fought to end slavery. Florida's white history mandate states, the standards will supposedly teach students about the political figures who strove to abolish the institution of slavery, such as Abraham Lincoln. Florida also requires its educators to explain the desire of the Continental Congress to end the importation of slaves. 
George Washington is listed as, quote, a key figure in the quest to end slavery. Why, it's wrong. George Washington never freed an enslaved person in his life. While he said things about slavery and wrote some down on paper, Washington never proposed a single piece of legislation, an executive order, or a declaration that even sought to abolish slavery. He characterized the whipping of a woman he owned as, quote, very proper, and hunted on a judge, a woman who escaped his forced labor cap at Mount Vernon, until the day he died. And he died owning 317 enslaved people. During the American Revolution, the Continental Congress temporarily halted the slave trade as a consequence of stopping all trade. Had they desired to end the human trafficking industry they could have, they did not. The Lincoln thing is easy. Quoting, My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear... I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. That's from a letter, Abraham Lincoln to Horace Greeley, August 22, 1862. Number seven, put black people, oh, pardon me. Number seven, but black people owned slaves too. Florida's white history mandate. Instruction includes the shift in attitude toward Africans as colonial America transitioned from indentured servitude to race-based hereditary slavery, i.e. Anthony Johnson, John Kasor. The examples of specific headright settlers only list the black people who benefited from the colonial policy of giving 50 acres of free land to colonial human traffickers. Actual history Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, so did George Washington and 41 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, but for some reason, the Florida Department of Education only lists black people as slave owners. In 1830, 3,777 free black people enslaved 12,907 black people, about one-half of one percent of the two million people enslaved in America according to a study by black historian Carter G. Woodson. Even in these cases, Woodson notes, the census records show that the majority of the Negro owners of slaves were such from the point of view of philanthropy. In many instances, the husband purchased the wife, or vice versa. Slaves of Negroes were, in some cases, the children of a free father who had purchased his wife. If he did not thereafter emancipate the mother... As so many such husbands failed to do, his own children were born his slaves and were thus reported. Head rights was a policy that awarded 50 free acres of stolen land to unskilled settlers for each person they brought to the British colonies. The government handouts were one of many white privileges that English colonizers used to build generational wealth by trafficking black bodies Florida's curriculum guide, however, only names black people as, quote, specific headright settlers. Number six, Negro conservatives. Florida's white history mandate states black conservatives Thomas Sowell and Shelby Steele are listed as political figures who shaped the modern civil rights efforts. 
why it's wrong, Thomas Howell, a black conservative economist, and Shelby Steele, a conservative academic and columnist, are not politicians. They are not political figures and have never held elected office. Aside from echoing and co-signing the talking points and values of white conservatives, they have no significant following or impact or even leadership roles in black-led organizations or institutions. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging the existence of differing opinions, even when they represent a tiny sliver of actual black people, but if the state of Florida wants to paint steel and soul as representatives of black thought, then they must acknowledge that Klansmen, segregationists, and white supremacists were representing a much larger coalition of white, me, of racist white people who wanted to withhold black people's God-given rights. Number five, but slavery existed in every society. Florida's white history mandate, according to the standards students will, quote, examine the condition of slavery as it existed in Africa, Asia, the Americas, and Europe prior to 1619. Instruction includes how trading in slaves developed in African lands, e.g. Benin, Dahomey. Instruction includes the practice of Barbary pirates in kidnapping Europeans and selling them into slavery in Muslim countries, i.e., Muslim slave markets in North Africa, West Africa, Swahili Coast, Horn of Africa, Arabian Peninsula, Indian Ocean slave trade. Instruction includes how slavery was utilized in Asian cultures, e.g. Sumerian law code, Indian caste system. Instruction includes the similarities between serfdom and slavery and emergence of the term slave in the experience of Slavs. Instruction includes how slavery among indigenous peoples in the Americas was utilized prior to and after European colonization. Why it's wrong. Every black person has heard a not-so-smart white person use the caucastic version of this argument. Depending on the person's ignorance of actual history, they will equate Irish indentured servants, Roman prisoners of war, and even debt peonage with America's race-based intergenerational, constitutionally enshrined human trafficking system that uses violence or the threat of violence to reduce humans to chattel. To be fair, it's much easier to just call it slavery. America's unique form of forced labor was different. While the African participants in the slave trade cannot be held blameless, a system like the one that evolved in and built this country had never existed in the history of the world. The victims were not enemy combatants, debtors, or the spoils of war, all of which existed in society since time immemorial. American-style slavery was racially homogenous. It was permanent and perpetually inheritable. And most importantly, it did not exist in Africa or anywhere on the planet until white people showed up. Slavery is not even part of African-American history. It is part of white history. Number four, you can be black and patriotic, but not both. Florida's white history mandate states, students will identify characteristics of responsible citizenship, e.g. peaceable assembly, obeying the law, community involvement. Clarification, 
Number two, students will identify characteristics of irresponsible citizenship, e.g., disorderly assembly, breaking the law. Students will recognize that the Pledge of Allegiance is an oath that affirms American values and freedom. Students will explain why reciting the Pledge of Allegiance daily is an act of patriotism. Why it's wrong, Crispus Attucks and Martin Luther King Jr. both engaged in civil disobedience, so apparently they were not patriots like the rowdy guys from Boston who throw tea parties. The Ku Klux Klan and the White Leagues were really involved in their communities and said the Pledge of Allegiance before every cross burning. Apparently in Florida, pledging allegiance to the flag of a country that has never pledged its allegiance to black people is more patriotic than protesting injustice. Go figure. Number three, there is a lot missing. Florida's white history mandate. While it is impossible to teach all of black history, perhaps the most significant thing about Florida's guidelines is the stuff that is intentionally left out. There is nothing about redlining and how its residual effects still shape the lives of African Americans. There are eight mentions of race riots, but only three massacres and a single lynching. All of those in quotes. Floridians will not learn about segregation and Jim Crow when they reach the eighth grade. Even then, those governments, pardon me, those government-backed regulations are only taught as a policy that black people overcame, not something that still impacts the country today. The word racism appears once. The phrase white supremacy or any of its variations does not appear in the entire guide why it's wrong. While Florida wants kids to learn how black people benefited from being enslaved, there is no benchmark that requires students to examine how every white person benefited from living in an economy built on free labor. The curriculum includes a little about the slave trade, without mentioning the thousands of Africans who were stolen and kidnapped without the help of Africans. It teaches how, quote, African men, both enslaved and free, participated in the Continental Army. But not that the majority of black soldiers in the American Revolution sided with the British. More than one benchmark requires students to learn about, quote, Judeo-Christian values and Christianity's impact on American society and only lists black Christian churches, even though scholars estimate that as many as 30% of enslaved Africans practiced Islam. The omission leaves students unaware that many of their religious traditions have roots in Africa and the Caribbean, including the ring shout, gospel music, and the four, and me, and four of the ten largest Christian denominations in the United States. They don't have to tell students that Thomas Jefferson was a racist, but it is malpractice to omit that the same man who wrote All Men Are Created Equal also noted that the blacks are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. No educator should tell students that beloved President Abraham Lincoln was a white supremacist. However, it is also impossible to teach students about Lincoln's political beliefs and motivations without telling them what he said Quote, I am not, nor have ever been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the black and white races. 
There must be the position of superior and inferior, and as, pardon me, inferior, and as, pardon me again, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race, end quote. Furthermore, how can one teach that America was built on democratic principles if the vast majority of Americans tolerated the treatment of black Americans? Either they were lying when they pledged their allegiance to a republic with liberty and justice for all, or they believed black people were justifiably excluded from these values. Racism and white supremacy are the only explanations. Number two. Where are all the white people? Florida's white history mandate, aside from evaluating the opposition of Southern whites to Reconstruction, here is every mention of white people in the entire curriculum guide, quote, bullet points. Instruction includes how collaboration of free blacks, whites, churches, and organizations assisted in the Underground Railroad, Bullet point two, instruction includes how whites who supported Reconstruction policies for freed blacks after the Civil War, white Southerners being called scalawags and white Northerners being called carpetbaggers, were targeted. Bullet point three, instruction includes the influence of white and black political leaders who fought on behalf of African Americans in state and national legislatures and courts. Bullet point number four, Assess the building of coalitions between African Americans, whites, and other groups in achieving integration and equal rights. Why it's wrong. The entire curriculum perpetuates the misbegotten, ahistorical narrative that most white people were interested in freedom, liberty, and justice for black people. That is not a myth. It is a lie. Even if only a tiny minority of white people committed all the violence, inhumanity, and injustices levied against black Americans, it could not have continued if the vast majority of white people didn't allow it. If most white Americans wanted to ban slavery, the nation wouldn't have endured the bloodiest war in the history of this continent. If white Northerners objected to racial apartheid laws, it wouldn't have spread to the South after the Civil War. Most white Americans thought civil rights demonstrations were not justified. 85% felt, quote, the demonstrations by Negroes on civil rights hurt the advancement of Negro rights. Of course, Florida educators probably understood that any mention of whiteness is always accompanied by the Pavlovian retort, not all white people. But according to the state of Florida, it's clear who was doing all of the enslaving, raping, murdering, lynching, and withholding of rights. No white people, according to them. And the last one, number one, it makes white people comfortable. Florida's white history mandate. No history course can teach everything. The African-American history strand is just one of 11 strands, making up 9.2% of the entire social studies curriculum there. There is a civics strand, a world history strand, psychology, financial history, and even a Holocaust education strand. Why it's wrong. In 2019, Florida's public schools were 37.4% white, 37.4% Hispanic, and 21.2% black. Not only are non-white taxpayers funding a disproportionately white version of history, but they are paying to whitewash their own. Meanwhile, white Floridians who want to learn more about their history and culture can take an advanced placement course in European history, German language and culture, 
French language and culture, Italian language and culture, or United States history. Even those not necessarily interested in white history can enroll in the AP Chinese language and culture, Spanish language and culture, Spanish literature and culture, and Japanese language and culture. AP African American Studies is banned in Florida, partly because it makes white people uncomfortable. Florida's Stop Woke Act prohibits classroom instruction that makes white people feel guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress because of actions in which the individual played no part committed in the past by other members of the same race, in quotes. And that's the entire point. Like the legislation, the new curriculum standards are for white people. Everyone except white people believes that increased public attention to the history of racism is good for society, while 62% of black people and 58% of Hispanics want schools to teach children about the ongoing effects of slavery and racism. Most white people do not. How history is taught in schools has always given black people anguish and psychological distress. White people are perfectly comfortable with black people's discomfort. Maybe white people are too comfortable with their children learning a whitewashed version of history. They can't imagine the discomfort of being forced to swallow the history of the people who oppressed their ancestors. It's hard to fathom how uncomfortable it is to watch dead white people get partial credit for black people's achievements. Perhaps the lingering effects of slavery wouldn't persist if it didn't make white people so comfortable with stealing black people's labor. America was comfortable with segregation and Jim Crow. Then again, if inequality made white people, quote, feel guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress, the entire American, entire education wouldn't be so unequal. I read that just as it is written. The entire American, entire education wouldn't be so unequal. We're almost to the end of this article. Considering their ignorance of actual history, white people's hubristic insistence on how our history should be taught is as remarkable as their continued comfort with four centuries of intentional pro-white propaganda. In many ways, the arrogance of racism really is impressive. And again, not all white people are racist. They may have simply developed skills that, in some instances, could be applied for their personal benefit. And that brings me to the end of that article. And about this author, Michael Harriet is a writer, cultural critic, and championship-level spades player. His book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America, will be released in September. Once again, we're reading from thegrio.com at this point. Next, some food news. This written by Jasmine Hardy. It was posted on the 20th of July. The Grio presents Black Maid. Meet Liana Blount, founder and CEO and chef of Black Recon Vegan. Bronx native Liana Blount is the CEO, founder, and chef of Black Recon Vegan. The company produces comfort food that takes its inspiration from Blount's African-American and Puerto Rican roots. Black Recon Vegan is actually a thought in 2016, she tells the griot. I just never acted on it because I was working my full-time job and also doing my other businesses, prep to go, which was like a meal prep business. 
During the pandemic, Blount shared her meals on her Instagram feed and began to notice that people were showing interest in her dishes. The reason why it became so popular during the pandemic is because I had more time to be home and to showcase these dishes on my Instagram feed, and people took a liking to it, she explains. We started to gain a lot of followers over the time, and people were home bored as well as just watching me make these recipes and post these photos. Pardon me, I think I should reemphasize that people were home bored as well as just watching me. She continues, and April 6, 2021, they wanted a menu. I created a menu for them, and I was cooking all the food, making the deliveries the same day. And from there, we haven't stopped. Blount went from cooking in her home to currently cooking at a commercial space in Harlem because of the high demand. She provides catering options and does pop-up shops throughout New York City! Exclamation point. Black Recon Vegan has received praise from stars like Grammy Award-winning artist Lizzo. On TikTok, Lizzo uploaded a photo of her trying several Black Recon Vegan meals. One was the chopped cheese egg roll. After taking a bite, Lizzo exclaims, I'm honestly speechless. This was the most delicious thing I have ever had. Blount has a very small but mighty team and eventually hopes to open up a brick-and-mortar store in New York City. I'm just a person who just grew up cooking, doing what I love, says Blount. You meet other passionate chefs who've been in culinary schools and have these big businesses doing what they have to do, too, and you're almost sometimes compared. I think I just feel like I'm in my own lane, and they know that they're in their own lane. Another one for food. Switching sources now. This one comes from Your Tango. It's written by Jessica Bracken, and it was posted July 17th. Influencer reveals disturbing history behind the origins of butter pecan ice cream. Nikki Jenkins is a TikTok creator who posts videos of herself cooking delicious food alongside history lessons, primarily focusing on black American history. In one recent video, she educated her viewers on the history behind butter pecan ice cream and its popularity in the black community. Jenkins revealed the significance of butter pecan ice cream in black history. According to Jenkins, black Americans in the Jim Crow South were denied the right to eat vanilla ice cream. While it was never officially a law, just as many other racist practices were accepted but never codified into law, there were countless anecdotal stories from black people passed down from generation to generation that they or a friend or a family member had been denied the right to purchase vanilla ice cream or that they'd experienced violence when caught eating vanilla ice cream, said Jenkins. Jenkins explained that in the mid-1800s, an enslaved man named Antoine developed a crafting, pardon me, grafting technique to propagate pecan trees, allowing them to be cultivated as a commercial crop due to the accessibility of the ingredients for butter pecan ice cream and the fact that it was relatively easy to make. The flavor gained popularity among black Americans. Many mentioned that it was the favorite flavor of their older family members and that they were grateful to learn about its background. An article published by The Daily Dot delved deeper into the history of butter pecan. The author spoke with Daryl Goodner, a Louisville 
ice cream shop owner who was inspired by the legacy of Butter Pecan to launch a podcast titled The Butter Pecan Podcast, in which he and his co-host discuss connections between systemic racism and foods, as well as other topics related to racism throughout the histories, pardon me, throughout history. Goodner shares, there is always an undercurrent of racism, even in the most seemingly benign issues like ice cream. Butter pecan is indicative of a lot of things about black people as a culture. When you don't have this option, you figure out the other one. Food writer Robin Caldwell also published an article about butter pecan ice cream and black culture. She spoke with members of the Culinary Cousins Grits Club, which she described as, quote, a group of black women and some men with food businesses and blogs. About the flavor, the women Caldwell talked to shared their fond memories of making butter pecan ice cream from scratch and eating it with their families. A comment, pardon me, a commenter on Caldwell's piece joined in the reminiscing, adding, This article conjured up memories of my mama, my aunts, my grandmother making homemade ice cream and the rock salt. Was that what it was called? The churning, the laughter, the licking of that thing in the middle, and then finally the joy of the first taste of that sweet treat that was like none other and definitely much tastier than anything in the freezers of grocery stores or any ice cream shops. Thanks for the memories. Yes, butter pecan is a southern black thing. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Jenkins' video was enlightening and provoked plenty of discussion from people who had an affinity for butter pecan and were interested in its place in history. In her other videos, Jenkins discusses other dishes with ties to black history, including barbecued meat, ranch dressing, collard greens, potato chips, collas, Nashville hot chicken, mac and cheese, and sweet potato pie. She also wrote a cookbook titled Blackberry Table, which she describes as a book celebrating black American food, culture, and history. I just have a minute or two left, and I pulled up some information about Onesimus, who was mentioned earlier regarding the smallpox vaccine. Onesimus was an African man who was instrumental in the mitigation of the impact of a smallpox outbreak in Boston, Massachusetts. His birth name is unknown. He was enslaved and in 1706 was given to the New England Puritan minister Cotton Mather, who renamed him Onesimus. Onesimus introduced Mather to the principle and procedure of inoculation to prevent the disease, which laid the foundation for the development of vaccines. After a smallpox outbreak began in Boston in 1721, Mather used this knowledge to advocate for inoculation in the population, a practice that eventually spread to other colonies. Onesimus's name at birth and place of birth are not known with certainty. He was first documented as living in the colonies in 1706. In 1716, or shortly before, Onesimus had described to Mather the process of inoculation that had been performed on him and others in his societies in Africa. As Mather reported in a letter, people take juice or of smallpox and cut the skin and put in a drop. In the book African Medical Knowledge, The Plain Style and Satire in the 1721 Boston Inoculation Controversy, Kelly Weiskup wrote that Onesimus is believed to have been inoculated at some point before being sold into slavery or during the slave trade. 
as he most likely traveled from the West Indies to Boston. The variolation method of inoculation was long practiced in Africa among sub-Saharan people. The practice was widespread among enslaved colonial people from many regions of Africa, and throughout the slave trade in the Americas, slave communities continued to practice inoculation despite regional origin. I'm saving these in case we have a chance to read more about him in the future. But that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for joining me for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the State of Colorado. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.